right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Rockonomics Podcast number 20. I am your host, Dill, and today our guests are composer Mitch Davis and producer Scott Brittingham of the music production company Pull, who provide original music, sound design, and music supervision for commercials, branded content, trailers, teasers, and other miscellaneous projects that happen to include collaborating with L.A. Guns on their latest release, The Missing Piece, and providing support and a studio for a little old band out of Ireland called U2. I caught up with Mitch and Scott at their Soho studio in New York City, and our conversation went something like this. go back to that was was kiss one of your i mean it's one thing to be an early influence but what what got you kind of into into music In, into music at, i mean I just, at a young age it's one of those things like i just always love music i don't know what got me into it it's just it was always there in my life you know like from like a, when i was a kid i was you know picking out songs on you know pianos and uh it was just uh i guess probably i think all all kids like music and right. so I'm just keep going with it <laughs> you know uh, but it's just it's one of those things I just always loved it and it's the only thing I ever really enjoyed doing um, and so I'm very lucky that I'm doing it now because I don't know I don't know what I would be doing otherwise that, right. that, where I wouldn't be miserable um, was there anybody musical in your family mom uh, or dad or just they were you know kept the radio on and no I really know. just it's, it was nothing it wasn't like they didn't they didn't like push anything on me I it was all myself I told them I wanted to take guitar lessons I wanted to do this I want to do that and they were very supportive of me doing it but uh, it was never like uh, you know it wasn't like musical family like shoving instruments in my hand or right. like that it was all uh, me discovering it on my own basically and they weren't even real music listeners I can't think of anything they listened to uh, you know growing up it was just uh, just kind of me discovering it it was just totally pure. Right. Discovering it on, completely on my own. Sure. You know? uh, How young were you when you first took a... Was it guitar Was it guitar yeah. your first instrument? Um, I don't remember when I first... I mean, you know, probably I'm going to say, you know, somewhere between seven and nine or something like that. Right. I remember, like, I wanted to take guitar lessons. Uh, probably even because, because of Kiss, basically. Okay, and, good. Uh, okay good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to make it. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to do... And, and the thing is, like, every... Cosmetology or... Right? Yeah, one of the two. But um, all the, uh, you know, so my parents were like, okay, let's get you some guitar lessons. But all the uh, teachers would say I was too young to play guitar, first of all. And they would want me to do, like, too young for a private lesson. They wanted to do, like, a group lesson, which mm-hmm. I didn't want to do. And too young to... You can't learn on electric guitar. And I didn't want to play acoustic guitar. So, like, they got me an acoustic guitar. I just wasn't into it. I never really did it. I had some lessons from some, like, you know... And I, I got some lessons with a folky guy who was not, you know, what I was into, and I just sure. never concentrated on it. Um, no, it's I, funny not to cut you off. Yeah. I, I feel like we have a parallel path because yeah. I was the same way. I was, I was into Kiss, but I didn't want to wait. To I wanted to go to the twelve-piece drum kit. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to learn the fundamentals. I didn't want to learn snare drum first. I mean, yeah. it sounds like you were a lot the same way. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, then, really, when when I was thirteen. I found a teacher who said, of course you can learn on electric guitar. In fact, it's easier to learn on electric guitar. It's easier to press strings down. So, and he lent me a guitar. And, uh, and then I was just really into it. From the time I started taking, you know, lessons with electric guitar, I was just super into it. And I just, just did it nonstop. You know, and it became, just my, my life, you know, became playing guitar, you know. Um, now you're a multi-instrumentalist. Yeah. Correct. When did you branch out from guitar? Um, I think probably, you know, definitely I think around, uh, well, in school I played drums in school, like from like third grade on. Okay. Like, you know. So lessons through the schools? Yeah. That type of thing? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I was always interested in just anything that made sound, you know, um, and I think probably when I started, you know, forming bands and things, um, I started getting more into other instruments because, you know, I'd have them around from other people in the band that I'd play other things. Um, and really, especially when I started, uh, you know, uh, getting my home studios and little multi-track recorders and, you know, the multi-track, multi-track cassette recorders, and I just want to do everything myself. 
so I, you know, learn everything so I could play everything. Right. Because, uh, you know, eventually I just kind of, you know, I'd be, I was, you know, writing and I'd be basically telling the other people in the band what to play and then I just eventually found it easier just to, instead of telling them what to play, I'd just play it all myself, right. you know. And did that come early? Like, are we talking high school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do you like that four-track TIAC? Yeah, a little four-track, like, you know, Tascam recorders, yeah. and up to a, then I went to an eight-track reel-to-reel with, like, you know, a mixing board and everything and some external, uh, uh, you know, processors and, you know, then, uh, you know, onto, you know, samplers and uh, syncing my, you know, uh, sequences up to tape and this was before there was digital audio so it was like syncing up my MIDI to tape and then you had like you know digital audio came out where you had like you know two tracks of digital audio you get in your sequencer and uh, you know just kind of I think I started a really good time where I was able to organically learn how everything worked mm-hmm. you know because you know now it's like you start like oh, I have a full Pro Tools system in my you know laptop and it's like nothing you don't even think about it and you have to figure out figure out how it all works. So I grew up at a time where it's like all you have is a four track cassette recorder, and then they you know you have an eight track really kind of builds and builds. They didn't have digital audio, right? You know, so then oh you get a couple of tracks of that, so you learn it little bits as it goes. And I know how the you know the uh, the the uh, Pro Tools system works and all the you know digital audio workstations, you know what the concepts are from a real mixing board, right? You know, instead yep. of just, so you, you understand the concepts of it, it makes all makes much more sense, I'm sure, than it would to anyone else. Of course, you still learn how to do it, you know, starting from digital, but but it I definitely helped you become a self self engineer, self producer, oh, yeah, self. yeah, right? yeah. <clears throat> and it definitely gave me a, a deeper understanding of what everything is because you know what everything is, you know, from what it really what it's being modeled off of because everything is modeled off of the physical counterpart. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you understand what that is, it makes everything else, right? You know, easier. Um, but yeah, what was the question about the <laughs> <laughs> playing different well, instruments? I was, yeah. was going to say from there, um, it's you know, it, I've met a couple people similar to you that it's you you take a keen interest in in recording mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so if you're you know playing in high school bands and getting to that, you know, graduating, moving to the next step, college or whatever, work. What was your head? Were you like, I want to be in a band and get famous, or I want to, I want to record people, or I wanted to do all of it really. And at some point, you know, around that time, probably, you know, I don't know if it was in college or before. Like, I, I started thinking of the recording process as an instrument in itself right. too, you know, and it just all became one to me. Like, I didn't really see myself like going to like, you know. Let me book studio time and someone will record me. I sort of was like, I want to, I want to do this. You know, it, it all became part of, you know, the sound, all of it together. Um, and I, you know, I saw myself just, you know, and I didn't know. This is also before, like, you know, the internet existed the way it does now. Yeah, sure. It's like now, you know, you're born knowing everything. Mm-hmm. Just because you go online, you see it. <laughs> I didn't know like what existed. At all I knew was being a rock star. What else, what other yeah. job is there? And how else? I guess I'm going to be in a band and like what you see. I didn't know that, you know, there's production jobs. I didn't know you could sit in a room and, you know, compose and make... I didn't know that existed. Right. You know, now now you do, but then... So I just had to kind of figure it out. And uh, so I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making records on my own um, and, like, you know, trying to get them on the radio, trying to get a record deal. I was, like, you know... And I kind of developed by, you know, other... Artists and people that would hear stuff I did, and they'd ask me to help out on their records, and it just kind of built from there. And and I'd learn from those people, and they, you know, hopefully learn something from me. And right. um, but I just kind of figured it out just from talking to people and being involved in it. You know, um, you know, in a kind of, in a, I guess, in a very almost like a loose apprenticeship sort of way, but nothing official. But I, you know, just kind of just being right. around it. Um, and like I said, I didn't know what what existed, so you know. Um, you know, I, you know, in, in college, I just, you know, I, I, I focused on like, you know, music courses and I was taking like, you know, every, every course they had in music there and graduate courses and things. And, uh, but it was really, you know, I, and I always say like, I didn't really learn anything I do from music courses. I just took sure. it because I like, but nothing I do relates anything to anything I learned in school. <laughs> you know, I just, it's all intuitive, everything I do. Right. And, uh, creatively, you mean. creatively. Yeah. yeah. It's all it's intuitive really. Um, and uh, then I, you know, went to law school after that, 
because as a, as a means to also get involved in the music industry where I thought I'd go to law school, you know, become a lawyer, work at a record company, learn the business, meet people, and then still just make my music after sure. that, which is exactly what I did. And, you know, I, I went to law school and became a lawyer at a record company, like immediately after law school. I interned somewhere, and the day after I took the bar exam, they asked me if I wanted to be a staff attorney, and I did that for exactly one year. After I felt I, it just became more of the same stuff over right. and over again. And uh, then... Were we, I'm sorry, where, where were you a staff attorney? Where was the place? TVT Records. Okay. So uh, you were doing yeah. kind of what you set up. Yeah, and uh, did it for exactly one year and quit, and then haven't had a real job since. <laughs> a happy ending. Yeah. Um, so your parents... Uh, yeah. Your parents must have been supportive because you you didn't say, "I'm dropping everything. I want to be a musician." No, it was no. In fact, my parents were like, "Why are you going to law school? You're going to hate that. You should go to music school." Oh, that's funny. And I said, "No, nah, trust me. I have a plan." And I said, "They didn't. Want, they were like, I don't get it. Why are you going?" Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, my my father. If I if I my father found an ad in the New York Times after I you know quit you know the the record company and all that stuff. Um, he had seen an ad in the New York Times for someone looking for a MIDI programmer. He's like, you should send something to these guys. And I did. And that turned into my first uh, job, like my first real professional job, which turned into me becoming a composer and then turned into everything else. That was the thing that started everything. If it weren't for that, I don't know if I would have ever even made it into the business. Okay. You know? That's the one thing that's... When a, is it? What's our time frame? What, like, what, what year are we in? What, what era? Uh... 95? Okay. 1995. Later than that. 96, so, 96. Maybe, uh, maybe in, uh, 96, 97, probably. Yeah. So were you at TVT that year? Was in that 95. I was at TVT 95, 96. So it was probably okay. 96, 97 is when that happened. Okay. Because I think we met 98. And I was already there for Right, you'd been there for So the music business as a whole still is pretty robust, it's the mid '90s. MTV still plays oh, this videos. Is, this is like, yeah, this record is, company still. This is a huge, yeah, still, still, still pay money. Yeah, <laughs> when it still mattered. Yeah, people still, yeah, buy records. Yeah. Um, and, and Scott, you went, you were in, you went to Duke. Are you? Are, <laughs> Actually, and I, you, you were, you were a quarterback at the. On the I, team, well, right? I got recruited to play quarterback there, but uh, there were some players that were a little better, better than me. <laughs> so, and I had some injuries and. Uh, um, and it, I did get a, a chance to actually play, uh, you know, some special teams and some defense actually. Um, but I took a completely different route because I, I was a failed musician. Like I thought I could play, but I just had I didn't have the the ability to practice. Right. <laughs> I got very frustrated. And what instrument? I tried piano. I took piano lessons as a kid. Um, I'd always loved music. Listened to music. We didn't have like a very musical family. We had a piano in the right. house. Um, I actually was forced, not forced, I, you know, kind of the cool kids were joining the marching band in, in junior high, so I thought, why not? And I played the trombone, okay. mainly because the, the music director said, well, you've got very long arms, you should play trombone, <laughs> but, the, you know, I signed up. Makeup. Yeah, I was like, but I want to play drums, I want to play trumpet, that's the cool. <laughs> I got stuck playing trombone for a couple of years, um, and then I kind of thought, eh, this isn't really for me, the whole practice. I love music, but this the idea and the discipline that it took, right. I just didn't have the personality for it, so I got frustrated with it very quickly. Um, but I always enjoyed listening to music and then kind of being a, a, a product of MTV right. and seeing all these little three-minute movies. I was just fascinated and just drawn into that world of how a song and an image can work against each other or against each other or for each other, with each other. I was getting into soundtracks and you know, a lot of my other friends were going to concerts, and I would kind of stay home and buy a soundtrack and listen to that all night. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I eventually got lucky enough to um, get to Duke, and after Duke, I was kind of lost, didn't know what I wanted to do. thought I was going to go to law school. realized I didn't want to go to law school, didn't want to go to school anymore, and uh, was living in Baltimore at the time. I grew up in Maryland, so mm -hmm. kind of the natural progression was to go to Baltimore, the biggest city in Maryland. And had a roommate that was a writer at an advertising agency, and I was kind of like... Oh well, that's yeah. weird. Like, what do you do? That can't be too hard, right? I, you, know, you have you know your image of what was it thirty something at the yeah. time. So, um, I kind of started nagging him and asking him a bunch of questions. Like, he seemed to be kind of aware of what's going on in our business. Like, well, I just kind of pay attention to the commercial. I think they're, it's fun to watch. You got these little thirty second movies. End up getting a job at the agency, Great Kirk Van Sant. It's an old in Baltimore. in Baltimore for about six months as an account executive. <laughs> Hated it. 
I bet. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> but I had befriended some of the creatives, the producer there, and kind of got roped into the produ- production side and uh, learned the editing uh, bay in there, doing the three quarters back and oh, forth, right, right. and doing some ripomatics yeah. and finding music for it. And they were kind of like, wow, you have a knack for finding the perfect music for this ripomatic that we're doing. And uh, I started doing a little bit more work there, but it was a small town, small agency. Um, and I had come to New York a couple times for some projects. Fell in love with it. Uh, basically sent my resume to every agency saying, just I just want to get here. I started working at McCann as a junior producer. Right. Was there what year for, was that? Do you remember? Oh, God. Uh, maybe 95, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, because we were we were colleagues at one at one time. We were. Yeah, you were there that long. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm trying to think. I I, I swear I I met you first. Oh, really? First at McCann. Okay. But I had free. I was freelancing there at the time. Okay. I think I would freelance on and off. But anyways, you sorry. I'm sorry. So, so you I came in a, as a junior as a junior producer. producer? No, music music just we didn't even have. There was a, they had just gotten rid of the music department at that time. Okay. And. Almost by default, because I was always had like a kind of a big CD collection, and because I was like the young guy in, in the group, not the you know, fellow young. I'm sure everybody was young at that point. But um, people started asking me like, well, "What? What do you listen to? What would be cool for this thing?" And by default, I kind of got notices like, "Well, ask Scott. Maybe he knows yeah. it would be a good song to, to cut to or something." Um, and we had hired a couple of music companies, and I was still kind of very green about that process. Like, I didn't even understand how we got music back. And, you know, we'd get a dat back right, and, right. or three-quarter, and there'd be a couple of variations on it. And I, wouldn't even, I wasn't really understanding how to even listen to this because it was, like, it was written that day, and I'm used to listening to either big soundtracks or big produced records and stuff. So I kind of got fascinated with it, and we had hired a company, and I got to go to the studio. And this was actually in Los Angeles. Um, it was a terrible project, but it was fascinating to go and sit in the room and see these guys with keyboards and stuff. And I'm kind of like, wow, this is awesome. This is pretty cool. And somehow I was able to, and it didn't seem that complex to me, but I was able to actually talk to the composers and say, well, I think what the creators are trying to say is they want this, 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 and this. And the guy was like, boom, light bulb. Like, oh, well, why didn't they just say that? I'm like, so I just had this kind of innate language that I could speak about it. Right, and I think those guys were like, "Can we just talk to him again?" I think the owner of the music company out there was like, "You speak the language. You should right. hop on our side." That that really is invaluable because I feel like even myself, as the host of this podcast <laughs> and as someone who is passionate about music, I was terrible at that. I couldn't, I, you know. And we, you know, we worked with music house all the time, and that's a that's definitely a skilled, a useful skill yeah. in business. And I, I think I was asked by the owner like because we need a translator basically right and because you're from the agency world you understand the inner workings of it and you know you do get a lot of exposure it's, it's actually a great asset to understand that process um so i jumped at it and started working with this company and that's where mitch had been working okay and that's where we met and i guess how many composers it was a bi close to a company there might have been eight ten something like that a bunch yeah and it was more than i could remember yeah and it was it was busy it was a great shop. I mean, that was like, you know, one of the hip places to be at the time. And, uh, I was kind of like baptism by fire. Cause I think as soon as I started, the executive producer there was looking to, you know, looking for some other opportunities. Right. And I was kind of like, Oh crap. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what to do here, but this, I think this ability just to be able to be that translator helped sure. and it helped the composers, because oftentimes composers get extremely frustrated because they're told by, you know, if somebody has a, some musical background, so they throw out a term, and the composer's like, oh, all right, well, if I literally do that, that's completely opposite of what I think you want, right. but I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I'd be in the room, and I'd hear it, and I think I'd kind of be like, let's play this again, but I think what you mean is, and it, I think these guys saw that as a positive, and it's like, this is great, but um, long story short, I guess... Two years we were there, and we had a cliche moment of nine eleven, and thought life's too short. Let's see if we can do this on our own. And I'm sorry, was that based here in New York? Yeah, in New York. York. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and then we started this yeah. place. Yeah. So what year was that? That was 2002, early 2002, 2002. end of 2001. Yeah, so we were there for like six years. Was it that long? Yeah. 
You were there that was longer than I was. Yeah. But um but it was great. I mean it was like amazing. It hit the ground running. Yeah. Um it uh it worked out well because um I think, you know, you had established yourself as a as a heavyweight there and um just by the volume of work and the volume of clients that I had kind of been the um, the conduit for a lot of the projects. Um, it just it was it was great that people followed us, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, we've been a literally a two man shop since okay. then. Now, up until that point, did you let's let's sweeten the pot? Did you have any memorable experiences working with the artists you admire or heroes of yours, or just uh, up to that point? No, I mean it was like at, no, because at that point I was really I was nobody up to that point. You know what I mean? Um, that was kind of like when my career was developing. You know, so I didn't right. really have. It. I mean, there were there were people that you know to me were important. You know, people that I worked, but no, but you know, to the rest of the world, it would be nothing. Like you know, it was not. Uh, you know, I wasn't like you know rock star coming into you know right. work on you know ads and films and things. Uh, that was kind of like the the beginning of uh you know that's the beginning of it all right yeah. now was there a when i look back you know when i look back in the last 20 or 30 years i feel it seems early 90s you know pete townsend was licensing a lot of his songs and right away you would get you're a sellout yeah you know and that dynamic with the whole changing of the the music industry now it's a you know means to an end and it's you know full-on promotion of yeah. get yourself a sync on you know, commercial movie and this and that. Um, any comments on that? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we were definitely uh, there for like the, the 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 changeover from being a sellout to you know and wanting to get into it. Artists, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's Moby who gets yeah, my yeah. credit for that. And yeah, it was like yeah. At one point, it was just like yeah, you don't want to. It's it's really. Yeah, I guess I. Well, the, art, but, the but, artists were still making money yeah. off selling records, right? Because right, the they were, yeah. Cause so you used to pay you for could, records yeah. back then, and you you would, and then you know we had the Napster revolution, yeah. So these artists were like, "What? My sales are?" Which seems, <laughs> and that's that's right around the time you guys are starting. Yeah. yeah. So I guess are you starting to see more, like even as a music house, if you're not doing a, uh, an original composition, are you are you either covering a, you know, a published piece or something. I think you're always going to have, piece. I mean, you being creative, you understand, like, you can't just sit in a room and point to nothing and expect this mental movie or mental musical score in your head to be realized. You have to point to something. Right. And so we get reference tracks. I mean, you just can't, sure, you sure. can't deny that. And, and obviously, if you're going to be inspired by a film or a TV show or just an old record that you're used to, you mm-hmm. kind of want to borrow those emotions from that thing. So you say, I want something like this. I want me to f- get the same emotion I get from that with right. this song. But right. ideally not to like, you know, you don't want to rip it off. It's like, no, no. Because you can't, yeah. if you just say like, you know, oh, I want something that's going to be well, happy give- and energetic. And okay, that, that could be like anything yeah. in the world, you know, so you got to say, focus on something. Give me like, so at least you know, like, oh, that's the instrumentation. That's like the general, like, you know, how polished you want it, how raw you want it, you know, what yeah. do you want, like, how big or small, you got just, you know. Like, if you have a blank canvas, give me a couple of colors to start exactly. with. Yeah, 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 not not in a way where you just, you know, want, you want actually that, but just, just you know, give me an idea. Of what you're and you'd hope that they would have, you know, their expectations are not like suddenly they give you a classic, you know, Rolling Stone song that's mm-hmm. been around for 50 years, and yeah, suddenly yeah. they say, like, I want something like this. And you're right. kind of like, well... <laughs> Let's <laughs> just, why don't you just go buy it because you're not going to create that in an afternoon, right? But at least you know I mean, you might, but yeah, but no, but at least you know that you know if you say you know like I like this Rolling Stones track, you know you know they're not talking about Bon Jovi, they're not talking yeah, yeah. about you know One Republic, they're talking about something yeah. classic. You know they're not talking about Chuck Berry because you say rock and roll, rock, you can say yeah. anything, you don't know what it means. It means so many things. You say something cool, okay? What's cool? When did you go to high school? I don't know what's cool <laughs> yeah. for you. You know, like. We used to have to do it. We'd have yeah. to. We'd have a call, and we could hang up and we'd say, "Okay, that call was from the Midwest." So their idea of, you know, well, not to disparage anyone in the Midwest, sure, but it was, it was a different sensibility. Or if we talked to an agency in Miami, like we wanted to be, you kind of almost had to think like, "Yeah, I mean, that's they're from this region or the LA." Sure. Would, it's just, it's just different. Or we had clients from Japan once, and uh, re- recently from uh, the was Korea. Korea, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone has a different idea of what you know is, is cool. So you yeah. can't just say cool because that means a lot of different things to different people. And you'd be amazed at how one adjective can send us down a rabbit hole completely wrong <laughs> for them. Because and this used to be a, a, a thing because I think years ago when it used to be that process, you know, like you'd have to triple bid or triple demo. Yeah. So you'd have your three conference calls back to back with three different music houses, and maybe you forgot to say to one of those companies, yeah, it's got like a you know, trip hoppy, cool little vibe, but you forgot to say trip hop to the other two people yeah. or whatever word. And for us, that's like, oh, we just narrowed it down to here. Like, why didn't they get it? <laughs> it's like because there was one word missing in that oh, yeah. description. Oh yeah, for sure. It's ama- and it's just, it's entirely subjective too because uh, it's it's music. Oh, we'll go back to the Napster revolution. And well, it's funny. It just you know the timing of your you you probably couldn't have started a company at a worse time. Yeah. But that yeah. proves the resilience. It's yeah. like if you can survive this, you know, everything else is, is take. But you're yeah. post 9-11. Yeah. I mean, the music industry collapsing probably didn't affect you at all. I mean, it, it, I mean well, profoundly, it, maybe. Well, I think it also helped us. We were, it was also the, a moment in technology in production, yeah. which was drastically changing, too. True. So it got True. a lot less expensive for a two-man operation to sound like... A big, big facility, and actually, you know, it's within a very short period of time. Yeah, it went. Point. It seemed like between the time we left there and started here, it went from being like, all right, you know, printed on a three quarter FedEx, send it yeah. to FedEx, to all of a sudden being like, we, know, yeah, we realized I think in six months we didn't need anybody else right. Could we started because we, had, we, could, like, we, we had, start sending MP3s to people, and we had like we had a, we we started with like a an assistant, you know, engineer, tech guy, receptionist. We, then we realized pretty quickly we we don't need any of that, no. you know. Because, you know, the phone rings and you just see it blink and you just wait. You know what's going to do? Someone's there. It's for Scott. He's the one who's talking to everybody. So right. one had to answer the phone yourself. You're just like, your name's waiting. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. You know, Scott, call uh-huh. So there's no point. And the engineer's like, it's easier for me just to, I don't need to say, all right, come on, uh, bounce this for me and put it on the network. I can just do it myself in two seconds. Um, so there was really no need for right. for the, the kind of staff you had before. Um, and a lot of the sounds started getting better, so you didn't need to have. I think it was like samplers had like you know you get like a second and a half of samples in there with you know on a floppy disk, you know, and pretty quickly went to having like unlimited sample plugins were just like starting to happen, you know, right. they created like samplers that can go you know, uh, you know, plugin samples as opposed to some like outboard samplers. Right, I had to have like a wall of samplers to get like just you know. You know, a, a barely a you know a, a, a drum library in there. Now you, it's nothing. Now I have a, you know, I, I don't even remember samples I have now in libraries. And we also we a lot of those things we were learning very quickly that um, you know when it is your place you have a lot more pride in the work. Sure. And you know you just no one was going to be looking after it as well as you would. And we may be both a little bit control freaks, but we thought, wow, this is. We don't need to hire anybody else. We don't need any other composers either. Right. Because we wanted... There was also a time where a lot of people started using... I think this is another byproduct of technology being cheaper. People decided, I don't have to work for a big company. I can just stay at home and do this. Yeah. And I can be a freelancer. Um, Which is great. I mean, there's a lot of really, really talented freelancers out there. But they're also kind of guns for hires for a lot of other companies. And we like the idea that when you look at the work that we're doing... That's the guy that you're going to be on the phone with, and that's the guy that's going to be making your music. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, there's a lot of freedom in that too, because we don't have a big family to feed. Mm-hmm. We don't have other. We don't necessarily want to have another coast of composers. It's like, what are they doing? <laughs> right. like, we love this. No, like, that totally and, makes sense. And like you said, like you know, when you watch the reel as far as talking other composer freelancers or this, that, and people who come and go, it's just like a revolving door of people writing. Um, you know, you want it so when you look at the reel and if you say, Oh, I want to hire them because, you know, I like that uh, rock track on there, do great you want to know the person who wrote that is one doing your thing. Yeah, like I'm you some freelancer who might not even be working on this. Or some, you know, the same freelancers working for ten other companies. It's like you want to know, like you want to have some identity and some, mm-hmm. you know, sound that is you, you know. And I think it's important to, you know, when you look at the real, you know, that's exactly who you're getting, you know. And even, you know, even if like you have composers who are just all staff, like you know, the the person who wrote the thing you hired them for is not necessarily working on your thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just it's 
it just seemed kind of pointless. It made more sense. And, uh, you know, I think I work pretty fast and I don't need, you know, it's like I, it, 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 I could do the Are you guys work. turning a lot of work down? Being, you know... Um, not to, I was saying I can mean, find time to do everything. And we try to be honest with them. That's going to be a tough... Yeah. Uh, yeah. We try to be honest. If if they call them, they'll often ask, like, do you have the time for it? And we'll and right. I'd usually hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we try to look at, like... And, you know, we try to look at the genre and, and, and what we have on our plate and, and you're like, yeah, I can do that. We'll bang it out tonight. I, I always feel like I can do everything. You know, it's like I... You know, I, I always think I can just, yeah, I, you know, I, I have this just the I can do it right. mentality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, you know, I'm, I've been able to, you know. But, um, <clears throat> but we'd be honest if we couldn't do it, you know, if we were not, I mean, we would be honest and say we couldn't. Because, uh, you know, it, again, because it is just the two of us, there's a lot of pride in that. So we'd hate to take something on that you'd do a half ass sure. job. Yeah. Because, you know, in the business, it can spread oh, yeah. pretty quickly that <laughs> I had a bad experience with those guys. Yeah. And, you're, and only just, you're only good as your last yeah. uh, product. And we know how a lot of hopping around in, you know, the creatives can go or producers can go that they just show up in another place like, oh, I worked with those guys once. Yeah. Horrible. Boom. Yeah. You're done. Doesn't take much. No. So you just you know, everything. And you try to, it's funny because the, the, you know, well, I'm sure you're going to start to ask about the budgets and how they've changed over the years. But, because we're a smaller operation, like I said, we have that freedom that when a project comes along from a friend, like, I got a pretty bad budget, but it's pretty cool looking. We right. can look at it and be like, you're right, it's just going to be a fun thing to do. Um, and it's a, you know, you're building a relationship or it's just something like, yeah, it's just, I mean, there are worse things to do and wake up every day and just let's find a cool piece of music or create a cool piece of music for something. Um, uh, you know, obviously you'd like to have, be rewarded for the work you're doing, but sure. um, it, it, it's that freedom of saying, like, you know, you're not becoming a slave to each project that comes in. You mm-hmm. can turn things away because you're like, eh, it's not that in- inspiring, or we don't have the time for it, or um, I don't know. It just it, it's it's refreshing to not have to feel you have to do everything. Yeah, no, that's definitely I would definitely see that. Um, at the same time, I want to do everything. <laughs> so it's like, but it's different though, because like you don't you don't have to. It's nice to want to, you know, yeah. and I'm happy that I still want to do everything and I'm not like just, you know, I don't hate the business, you know, it's like I, I, I want to do more, you know, mm-hmm. it's still, you know, it, it's still my hobby as well as my job, even after all this time, you know, right. Um, it's still, it's still the, you know, the one thing I like to do in my free time is still make music, you know, so. Yeah. It, it's still pretty exciting. You get a yeah. cut in your life. Oh, this would be fun. Like, what if we did something like this? That'd be that'd be kind of a mindfuck for this. That'd be fun to do. <laughs> now, do you have anything? Are you playing out live at all? Or do you have an outlet in that? You know, um, or do you have a I, do you have a, a want? Yeah, no. I mean, I I do like you know. It's it's one of those things. I like I like kind of being uh, you know in the studio behind the scenes and mm-hmm. uh, you know doing that stuff. But it's nice once in a while to do stuff. Like if there are certain projects that you know gain traction that require me to then eventually go out and do some live stuff mm-hmm. you know I do it um, when it seems fun you know and uh, you know if I can do you know little bits of things like I you know just sat in for a song at the you know the uh, sold out uh, LA Guns show <laughs> playing guitar for uh, a couple months ago at uh, Gramercy like, those things are fun you know right. to do uh, you know, it's nice to. I mean, I have all these guitars. It's nice to have someone see them, aside yeah. from me sitting in the room. <laughs> that's, that's the big reason I like <laughs> that. I want to. I just want to. Someone has to see this stuff that I have. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed on your <clears throat> um, on social media feed, you know, there, there's there looks to be some cool stuff, and you know that you mentioned the LA Guns. Yeah. Now that was. A, I mean, you you were writing for them too, right? Or I mean, yeah, you guys wrote, collaborating. Yeah, and, yeah, Tracy and I, Tracy Guns and I wrote that. That record. How did something like that come about? Um, I, I became uh, friends with uh, Tracy a few years back. Um, we were both beta testing the same piece of uh, iPad uh, studio recording studio software, and uh, um, and before that, I had actually um, pro- recorded and produced. Uh, Stephen Malkmus doing an L.A. Guns cover. Cover. 
And uh, so then when I, you know, met Tracy online with this thing, um, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I recorded that song. And he said, oh, I never got a copy of that. I got a copy of it. So I started talking and trading it back and forth. And then we quickly, you know, became friends and found out we had a lot in common. And uh, we just, uh, you know, started hanging out and working together and just doing stuff. At that time, he was, uh, he had stopped doing L.A. Guns and just doing some other stuff right. and some solo things. And, uh, you know, we were just we were working on some stuff together, and then uh, just kind of happens one of those things like you know, you know, then Ellie Gun, you know, the reunion between him and Phil with Ellie Guns, and you know, he asked me to help out with that, and you know, it all worked out great, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Now was yeah. he? Was he? Were you guys in? This, would you guys collaborate in the same room? Or were you guys bouncing ideas? No, he's in coast to LA. Coast. I'm here. He would. Okay. Uh, he would give me. Uh, you know, the music track, like the backing tracks, and say, here's, you know, wrote this new song, and then I'd, uh, you know, write some lyrics and melodies on top of it and send it back, and we'd kind of go back and forth. And um, you recorded Phil Hill, though. What? You recorded. Yeah, well, for the record, I recorded Phil singing here also. Okay. Uh, but the writing was was back and mm-hmm. forth. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of a modern modern age collaboration where yeah. you have to be in the same place at the same time. You oh, know? that's cool. How did the Stephen Malcolmist thing come about? That actually happened because, uh, you know, we were friendly with uh, his uh, record label, the Beggars Group, and uh, it started by, um, I had recorded, they needed to re-record some of Stephen's vocals for uh, a single he had done, but there was a, some uh, you know, profanity and so I had to do a radio version of right. it. And uh, so I re-recorded with him some of the some of the vocals and uh, I guess I was, you know, he, he liked working with me enough where when he was doing that song, he said he wanted to do it here. Oh, cool. And uh, and he kind of, you know, that was, was a lot of fun. They, it was, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, kind of a mostly live sort of situation, but, but separate. We kind of separated everyone into, you know, different rooms, live and isolated at the same time. And then, you know, some other stuff on top, some other layering and stuff. It was a, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And uh, he's a super creative guy, also. Just like you know, was, yeah. I, I I regret to say I wasn't into him till later, like yeah. till after I you know mm-hmm. I, I never saw him live in his peak and stuff. But yeah, yeah, well, yeah. He was a uh, he was really cool to work with actually. Um, and it was just amazing, like because he would like do the songs and he just like you know like like you know just they just did like five different versions it's like alright let's do it again it's just like totally different every time right. they just do it and just like kind of like a, you know it was just great the way they you know just watching the process and like listening to the song and it's a band just kind of internalizing it and then just doing it right. you know just kind of spitting it out differently where it wasn't like you know just it's like the you know the the, the height of a uh, you know creative body there that just to to be able to to do that you know yeah um not just you know him, but all the whole band just to be in sync like that, and just to you know totally reinvent it, like just every time, like in a row, and just play it was it was great. That sounds really cool. I mean, I've, yeah. I've had the experience to record a couple of times with a band, but it's always like <laughs> stick to the script. You know? Yeah, we're on the clock. Yeah. Well, we don't have clocks here, so it's like, <laughs> take your time. There's no problem. Or yeah. windows. That's good. Yeah, or yeah. windows. Yeah. If you ever leave here and be so like, you know, what the hell time? You is never it? know. Like, yeah. What day? Time? You don't know. You've been working on it. <laughs> um. What about some other collaborations that have that have kind of uh, present, presented themselves to you guys? A small band from Ireland that popped by for a couple of years. Yeah, it's been a while with you too. Uh, now, how does and how would something? I mean, that, it, to me, it's funny because it, it, to me, I heard about it. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, "What? You know what? <laughs> like, what happened? But what? You know, like, what happened? Well, <laughs> like, um, how did you guys cross paths with you two? You know, we built this studio to be comfortable and feel like a home because we spend a lot of time here. Yeah. And I think because we had gotten lucky when we got the lease here, like, you know, right after 9-11, that a lot of these spaces were in the right, western Soho area of these big printing warehouses, places, um, got a pretty good deal and we had a lot of space and we try to make it feel as comfortable as possible. And because we're, we're fortunate enough to kind of come off the ground floor area, you don't have to deal with going through security, going up to a certain floor, and like, you know, a lot of the recording places in, I mean, I it's Bono now. But my speaker. Um, <laughs> but we were kind of having some parties. We had some listening events with the guys from Beggars. Um, we'd have some 
uh, we had a, like a push a tea event here. <laughs> we had um, it was almost kind of organic in that we we bring a lot of our friends and music people around here, mm-hmm. and someone from their management company came to a party, and we got a call I think a week later saying, "I'm checking on your rates." And I was kind of confused. I'm like, "This isn't we're not a yeah we're not that kind of facility." Oh, um, that's too bad because we have uh, one of our A-list artists is in town wants to do some writing. And would, would it matter if it's one big? Yeah, maybe? I'm like, sure. whatever. Okay, who is it? Well, Edge and Bono are going to be in town. I'm like, hold please. <laughs> You're like, uh, you know, what? I just found the rate. Yeah, right here. it's over here. <laughs> oh, he said rates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and they, I asked Mitch. I'm like, they want to come by and check out the place. And I'm like, sure. And um, their producer and engineer. And actually, it was just the engineer and like a tech guy yeah. came by once. First. First. Yeah. Walked through on a weekend. They're like, this could work. And I think the next day, Edge came by because he has a place down in Tribeca. And he walked in and he was like, I like, live here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually had, we had Smittix on tap in our little bar area. And he's like, perfect. <laughs> Done. And they, I mean, that they are like a gravitational force. They had like a 18 wheeler pulled up, unloaded about 50 flight cases. It's like an arena's worth of stuff. I mean, Edge had. Do you have another door than the one I went through? There is a yeah. (laughs) There's a loading dock. It was just logistically it it made sense, and they just loved the vibe, and they saw all the gear here, and they're like, "I'm at home." And it was just it has a very we like I said we try to make it very comfortable feeling like you're, you're kind of at home and not at a workplace. Not too stuffy or stodgy and feel creative, you know. And also I would say, like, yeah, Edge had, like, like every guitar he has on, like, 50 <laughs> guitars here, his whole rack of stuff. Just, they really brought an arena's worth of stuff here, you know. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And they just, you know, we were just privy to it all. And they're... And they, did, I'm sorry, did they come in for, like, a writing session? Or they, yeah. Like, well, they were here for, like, two and a half years. Oh my gosh! You'd say yeah. on and off, and yeah. they'd be here for like you know three months, and then they say, "All right, we're gonna leave for you know uh, four weeks to do you know uh, this tour over here," and then right. come right back. And then they, they, they were doing Spider Man at the same time. Yeah, actually, it was around the house. Oh, that's right. So uh, yeah, the, the Broadway um, thing. But it would be like you know they would you know sometimes be on tour and they have like oh, we have a week off. All right, let's load everything in. And they'd spend like you know two days loading stuff in, work for a, record for a day. And then, like, spend two days loading stuff out again. <laughs> you know, like, all the stuff, everything, the entire arena's worth of stuff, which I guess isn't a big deal because they load into arenas and it's, like, it's, it's their crew, they just, that's what they do. And it's funny because the way they worked, which is kind of fascinating to, to be part of, you know, watching it, and I don't think, you know, they looked at us as like, oh, we're in their house kind of thing. I mean, they're very, very respectful, great group, group of guys. Um, but as, you know, they, they'd leave for the night, and the engineer would kind of get these homework assignments on working on the songs or, you know, working on some parts and stuff. And, just strike up a conversation and then you and he got along really well and we you know always since everywhere they like they got inspired mm-hmm. and they, they a lot of what they wanted to do was something very similar to something to stuff that I had been doing a style and as I got to know their engineer more like he knew about that and he mentioned it to them and it turned into you know me being able to help out with stuff like that um that's amazing yeah Sounds like a, a, a once in a lifetime experience, but it's funny. It's funny that uh, you know I would never be able to get them on the show, but I'd like just to get to like their. It's it's just funny the logistics yeah. of how they move around. It's got to be. I mean, from a expense, you know, scenario, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah well, to get their uh, give me their accountant's number and I'll <laughs> come on the show and discuss. Yeah, that, that was and that that was. I mean, that was pretty. It was pretty funny that we didn't really, you know build this place for that those kinds of situations right and the fact that it happened that kind of um, naturally and then we kind of became friends with them and then when they come in town they ended up you know, like well let's go down you know to scott and mitch's and we'll do uh they did some interviews here they yeah. did uh um stopping to use the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was they, they it was funny they, i think they one time left everything here for like a month, month. Yeah. And we put it all under tarps, you know, because we had clients. Because we couldn't yeah. really have clients during this situation. It's like hide, like you had the like, flight cases, like you two on the side, <laughs> yeah. trying to cover. The, don't look over there. And then that was one of the things we we're like, you know, they're kind of hiding in plain sight here. If you walked by on yeah. any given day while they were here, I mean, they're just there's music just pouring out, and you kind of walk by like, ah, there they are. Did you have to do like a non-disclosure 
No, no they were just they knew we were kind of cool about it. Screen. And and yeah. yeah, and uh and I think they um appreciated that when they came in off the street they were just like we could just be at yeah. ease and they had the place themselves. And that was part of the deal. They wanted to be kind of a lockdown situation. Yeah. Um it became interesting because we because we had so many parties before, we'd sometimes have someone like you know, <laughs> buzz and I'd see in the you know intercom I'm like, Oh, oh. I got to run outside and be like not a good time, you know. <laughs> But, uh, so did that fun. end up leading to anybody anything else in similar manner? Any other? Yeah, then um, I think it kind of became like we were like this hip speakeasy place yeah. to go to. We had a we had a few walkthroughs of some other big artists that just logistically yeah. wouldn't. I mean, we didn't, didn't want make to sense. Start, we didn't want to do yeah. more of that. It's like a couple of things. Like it's like a David Bowie, you know, was possibly going to work that. You know, through them they you know suggested that they check it out. Then you know, so they came through to talk about that. But I mean. I wouldn't have wanted to do it for anyone like other than someone like David Bowie or something. Right. Like that. And not, was that just his people at the time, again, producer or engineer, or did he come Yeah, by? it was uh, uh, Tony Visconti. Oh, right. Producer came down yeah. and, uh, you know, to look at it. Um, and, uh, I mean, that would have been really cool. But I think it's, it's only, we only would have done it if it was someone that we just wanted to do it with, just right. to work with, you know, otherwise. Was that fairly, re- was that like his last two albums before yeah, his? Yeah, it would have been, yeah. Okay. Um but yeah, other than that, I mean, it just well, takes too much time away from everything. Yeah, else. and then I think the, the Damon Albarn and Bobby Womack. That was well, those are great, but that's not the same thing though. Those are like you know short term things. Yeah, spent, right. yeah. We spent a week with you know Damon Albarn and Bobby Womack, which is fantastic, um, but different than like recording a full yeah, album. Yeah, that was right. Right. What, of, what were they doing? Um, it was after uh, they recorded a record together, uh, Damon Albarn and Bobby Womack, and uh, this was. Uh, it was actually they recorded at Damon's place, and um, this was the first time they actually ever played together in the same room. But they were rehearsing for a tour; they needed to rehearse right. somewhere, and so they came down here and they spent a, a little over a week here. I think it was, and uh, they just kind of set up shop in uh, the room and just play live. And we actually, I, I mixed that and recorded also. We recorded the sessions also, mm-hmm. but it was really the idea of it was to I think just to practice more. Uh, to kind of rehearse, and also to, to, they filmed it for some 4AD sessions, things like that, but um, it was just uh, kind of a lot of a, a little of everything, like okay. for, you know, live sessions, rehearse for the tour, I think just kind of a... Hung out. Hung out, hang out, hang out week, yeah. That was fun. Yeah, and that was actually cool, and Damon actually said he came in and said this is the first studio, studio he's been to that actually felt like his studio. His place? You know? That's nice. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Brian Burton, Danger Mouse, kind of had the same. Yeah. He came in because he was ended up final uh, finishing the the U two record, and he said this is one of the rare studios he's come to where he felt like didn't feel like it worked. He just felt like it was That's coming cool. to it. And then he came back. He did some other stuff. Came, you know, coming to record stuff here also. Was that the? Was, I'm sorry. Was the U two album? Was that the one we all got for free? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they infected yeah. your. Which phone. for the record, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't mind. I know, like, right? Geez, you know, who cares? Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah. Again, going back to social media, did you guys do something with Chris Novoselic? Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Well, Nirvana? we didn't. We didn't record with him or anything like that, but we uh, done some stuff where we've uh, hosted. Uh, we hosted a, uh, a, a a gathering for him for okay. his one of his uh, uh, projects, political. Uh, okay. You know. The fairvote.org Fair. okay. organization that he's a big part of. And they had, uh, again, it just <laughs> random people call us like, hey, I hear you've got this great <laughs> spot. But is it, I mean, so he was just using your square footage? Yeah, and I think yeah. for, uh, for, for a gathering, or did you need a sound, did you no, need no, some just sort to, of audio just aspect? It, just to do it here because, uh, um, you know, just do like Friends of Friends, we were involved yeah. in something with uh, CBGB, like developing a TV show for CBGB. And, uh, you know, and he was friends with the guy who owned the intellectual property for that. And just through that, we got sure. to know Chris and all this stuff. And then uh, thought, oh, I know a cool place to you know, to do it. And, you know, turned out to to work out well for that. Um, you know, we had space and right. you know, why not? But uh, I'd love to record him, though, if he... Uh, yeah. <laughs> How about Taylor Swift? 
Yes, we worked with Taylor Swift. <laughs> she came in. Yeah. We we did some promo stuff for the Grammys with her, and uh, again, it was like just the grapevine of like you, you need a cool spot to go. And uh, it was a couple times actually. We did that for the Grammys where they videotaped her like accepting an yeah. award or something like that in, mm-hmm. the, in the studio here, and also uh, doing some. Uh, like she was a guest DJ at a radio station. She was recording some of her parts. Okay. Her, her radio stuff here to some just talking stuff it wasn't uh, wasn't recording music okay very funny it's funny I mean it's funny to say again like it's, yeah, I ask because it's like you, yeah. you put it up there like yeah December yeah. December 2014 yeah yeah Taylor Swift uh, leaving the, the studio yeah. dashing so, out so looking forward what do you guys see or you know what kind of opportunities do you would you look forward to getting that you may not be getting now like what's what would you like your future to be yeah. you know it's funny that um I think we wouldn't be doing this as long as we've been doing it if we kind of didn't feel like we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like it, it, every project we get in, um, it feels like another opportunity to kind of make a big splash. I mean, you just never know what that next project might be. Right. Um, and I think that's what's been fascinating about music and commercials now. It's the new A&R platform. I mean, you can be discovered overnight in a commercial. And I think that's the other thing that we talked about, you know, possibility of selling out. It's not selling out. It's exposure. I mean, there's no other better exposure than, you like, you say, a Super yeah. Bowl spot or yeah. a Grammy spot or... You know, also, I, I, I was going to mention before, like, when you, I think the idea, it wasn't necessarily, I think, because of the collapse of the music industry, in quotes, as they say, that made people go from thinking it's selling out to wanting to do it. I think a lot of it's because commercials got a lot better mm-hmm. also. I think, you know, they're just much cooler. They're more, you know, cinematic. They're things you'd want to be associated with a lot more right. than in the past. And know? social media, yeah. the sharing of it. Like, did you see this? I mean, you know, yeah. if it used to be live television, you, just, you know, they, if they had a small media buy, they spent all the money in the production. Like, you'd only see it if you were in the business because you got the three-quarter from that director. Right. And now yeah. it's like, oh, my God, it aired once, but it has, you know, 80 million views on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing exposure. And yeah. plus, it's, I think it's only selling out if you're doing something that's against what you believe in. Yeah. You know, if you're, it's not selling out if you have, like, you know, I've here's a song that I created. Yeah. Oh, and someone's doing this, like, cool thing and for a product I like or whatever it is. And say, oh, I, you know, sure, I'd like to do that. You know, and you're not up there, like, you know, saying, you know, you know, changing your lyrics to, you know... Yeah. You know, and, and buy this, <laughs> this gum or whatever, this, you know. It's for you. Yeah, it's like, uh, which, uh, not not to, although I love that uh, when when Ronnie James Dio did that, uh, did that Budweiser commercial in the style of Rainbow in the Dark. All right. <laughs> which he's, is, he's from I, he's from my hometown. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, upstate New York. See, I like that. That was over the top. That was really cool, though. <laughs> that's like, I think that's a good one. But, uh, yeah, so I think, I, I think it, it's... I, I think what people are doing now, I think it's just the environment changed of advertising, so it's not so much selling out. I yeah, think yeah. people still do they'll turn things down that will be selling out or go against what you know what they believe in. Yeah. You know, but I think there's just a lot more opportunities for things that are, you know, acceptable to yeah. do, you know. Well to your point, it got a lot cooler. It's funny, like the Apple commercial would be a commercial that launched a band. I mean mm-hmm. Jet was pretty much launched from a Apple iPhone. Well, me. I that's, what I, that's why I started playing live. I, said, like, was, I had a, a song in the first iPhone commercials they licensed from one of my records. And they used it like two years or so yeah, on that. Two year license. Um, and, you know, it, um, and that was, you know, because of the attention it got, it made me have to, you know, do some like, you know, live stuff on like, you know, TV shows and oh. radio shows and interviews and stuff like that. So I had to, you know, some like, you know, festival sort of things. Um, where I didn't want to like wasn't going on tour but I did think where I can go somewhere and there was a you know an audience that was an interesting process for about six months we were getting these because we have a publishing deal with Universal Mitch's writer producer artist Um, and we got this call from people at Universal saying like someone is interested in one of your songs we're like cool what is it well, I can't really tell you, but I can tell you. <laughs> so it was six months of this back and forth, and we'd actually get on the phone with the producers of this commercial, being like, we've got this big product coming out. That's huge. Yeah, and we're like, okay. Like, I can't explain it to you, but we love the song. And I was doing edits, like, you know, they couldn't even show me or tell me anything about it, but I was, like, talking to them and, like, trying to, like, edit the song for a time. I was, like, they'd play, like, the voiceover on the phone for me. I was like, 
and it should end over here. And I'm trying to figure out how to make it out without seeing it uh, and hearing, like, you know, vague kind of approximations of the voiceover. And I couldn't even, t- I had to, and I was, like, trying to like, put, like, a, a band together at the same time because I knew something was happening. Right. And I couldn't tell them what was happening. So nobody, I couldn't tell anybody what was happening. <laughs> That's kind of job. Yeah. And I didn't even know for sure until I saw it on TV, you know. Um, but, yeah, that that started... Uh, and they ended up using the first 30 seconds of the song. And, like, at the 32nd second is when the vocals come in. And they had told us, you're going to be... You guys are going to be huge. we put it all over iTunes. And, you know, you'll be a new... You want to break like, this, this band. Awesome. You want to, like, you know, really promote you and do this and that. And, then, yeah. and they... Because you know it didn't have any lyrics, people assumed that it was written for it or that it's not okay. a real song. Yeah. But it they became kind of this iconic thing and this idea of like you know the mandolin and it started a trend. It started a whole trend of the musical that, that kind of indie folky. Is that toy. on your website? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All the toy pianos up. and mandolins and ukuleles. It started that whole kind of thing, which then everyone started doing, it and I kind of got tired of doing. Because I did it because nobody was doing it right, at the time. At the time. It was one of those things. It was a uh, a reaction to. Like, I was doing a lot of electronic stuff, and I was reaction to the fact that I didn't feel like I could do anything different with electronic music, or, you know, I felt like you couldn't, like, you know, you couldn't confuse anybody with electronic music. Everything was just so just normalized. Like, it used to be, like, you know, you'd be like, well, what is that sound? Or, I don't know what that is. It just, it just got boring. And, and then, like, you know, you'd have, like, you know, a pop song that samples, you know, this, like, underground electro song, and then it now makes that underground electro song into pop music, so it's not cool anymore, and this is that, so nothing was anything anymore. Right. And so, I felt like the way, the only way, and I couldn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't get any noisier or dirtier or glitchier, this and that, so I, the only way to go further was to kind of go backwards to these, like, you know, 100-year-old toy pianos and just little, like, you know, tinkly instruments. And, right. Just go as quiet as possible, and you know, and uh, and the first album just kind of just like came out of me like just really quickly, just so, you know, and it was very different from anything I'd been doing. Um, and I think it was you know I was just trying to do something that's just as different as I could think to do without really thinking about it a lot, you know, right? But just kind of do something that's the opposite of what I had been wanting to do, you know, just. Uh, but I think. People Very innocent and yeah. intimate, and I think just the reason it became successful and, and it became a very licensed album too, you know, all around. And I think uh, you know the reason it became successful in that way is because I think people probably can tell it was not trying to be anything. It's just it was just a you know a sincere mm-hmm. record, you know. Um, now is that under the band name that's or is Orbis that Orbis Square? Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's funny because I in doing a little bit of research on you guys, I. I it's familiar to me. The name's familiar to me, and I didn't know from yeah. where. But I bet you, <laughs> we started getting I, our own references back to us. I bet you <laughs> that goes back to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we can wrap, wrap things up. I, I do the same five questions to wrap up every show. So uh, The first question is just, uh, what's your most uh, prized musical possession? As you know, Mitch is looking around. Yeah, there's like... No, because I do. I, there actually you know, are a couple of... I, I've never sold it. I have everything I've ever had still. Now, does, is any of this stuff taken from, you know, have a story behind it that, that was, yeah. you know... Well, I mean, the, the... We wrote a song about one of them, right? I did, yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the thing, yeah, the thing that I would say, like, my most prized ones, I think is two things. I still have my first acoustic guitar over there and my first electric guitar, that red pointy embarrassing right one there. there. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Is, uh, you know, <laughs> my, like, from, you know, when I was a teenager. It's, I mean, I don't, and still... I still play them, so I think those. I would say those are my uh, most prized possessions. Those two, probably the electric one more than the acoustic. I'd say is my most prized possession I can think of right now. I found mine. <laughs> it's yes. actually my Merlin. What's from, I was going to say, I've got the name. I was going to say it's the Wizard, the yeah. Merlin. The only thing I've kept around is probably my grandfather's harmonica, which I can't even play harmonica. That's cool, though. Yeah, just keep it. You yeah. know, so that's, that's probably mine. That's uh, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, question two is if if I were to give you each one million dollars for a charity, which one charity gets it? I'd probably say something something that benefits uh, animals in need. Okay, possibly. Yeah, I don't I don't have a specific one. I can I'll I find could, one. I could name a specific. First, I got to find the million dollars, yeah. then yeah. I'll find you yeah. the charity. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to stay musically inclined because I'll just get angry if I go political. Um, I would say you know just 
keep funding having music in schools, like in music public schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um, get them started early. I wish I had stuck with it. I really do because I would be a better musician now, and I would. Of course, then I'd probably be a pain in the ass to you if I were better. But um, yeah, I think kids in music—they just need to, you know, have it a part of their lives their whole time. Um, next couple questions aren't as heavy. Uh, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? It's the Alan Barson Project song that's used for the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> What's it, Cirrus? Oh yeah, Cirrus. Is it the dun 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 dun? Yeah. dun? Someone sets the stage like, will he, will it, will he get in or will he not? <laughs> right. Oh, serious. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll say, uh, uh, I'm going to say Billy Squire, don't say no. <laughs> Good. Don't say no. Good one. Right. Good one. <laughs> now, he's in New York. Have you guys ever crossed paths? Or Yeah, he's there? actually, well, I'm not to stray from your uh, five questions, but he's my all-time favorite artist. Actually, the first concert I ever went to was uh, Billy Squire. And, uh, I was actually lucky enough to meet him and now become friends with him. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, kind of uh, coaxed him back into the music business out of retirement and uh, got him to sing and play guitar on a couple of songs on one of my records. Oh, great. And then uh, record and produce with him new Billy Squire songs after that, too. So, which... You know, I consider you know the I, I consider that the the high point of my musical career. Cool, very you know? cool. I love Billy Squire. I mean, he he definitely a uh, yeah, solid. To play on tour with him. He did, yeah. And then I uh, I did open for him when he came to New York uh, a few years back with Orb Squire. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. um, you might have answered a, qu- a okay. question now, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, the next question is: What song is stuck on repeat in hell? I'm sure someone says cars, cars for kids before. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that one. I, I'm going to say in the business you're in, you might not want to offend anybody. Right, exactly. Cars for cars for kids might would. Uh, that's a safe bet. It's a good answer. I can't top that answer. Actually. You want to so double down on that? Oh man. <laughs> um, last question is the best concert live performance that you've witnessed. You know. Only because we had such proximity would be that U2 show that we got to go. We we just were so... It was at the Meadowlands, um, or MetLife, whatever that stadium is now. Right. Got to go hang out with them early, go understage, see the entire setup. Um, <laughs> we're just hanging out with them as basically the it had filled and Interpol opened for them yeah, we were still and we were still on the stage yeah, and we're like, the stage. Talking, they're like they're like, still talking and they're like oh I guess you know let's go let's go back downstairs and we're like oh my god this is pretty cool um, I think that just experience was pro- and it was a great yeah. show yeah. oh and then they played your version of The Fly oh yeah that was cool that was pretty cool so we had he had done a um, was that during the intermission is that the piece you have on yes. the website yeah but that was, Actually, that was a different concert though that, was a di- that wasn't at the MetLife that was at um, that was in the indoor that was it was at the, yes, at the garden at the garden yeah and we didn't even know that they were doing it because um, we're you know we had some good access as well mm-hmm. and you had done a cover of, uh, um, for one of the, the 20th fly. anniversary of The Fly Rockton Baby Rockton Baby sorry and your version of the fly suddenly comes on. I, I did for, yeah, <laughs> with, uh, yeah, with their engineer for the for uh, Gavin Friday, Friday to sing on. Yeah, but as far as my like best concert, I mean, that, there's so many best concerts. Like it's like you know that first Billy Squire concert, and also I just saw him again a couple weeks ago. The last concert, which I even told him, I think was one of the best performances I've seen from him. That's great. Ever. That's great that he's on and, top. Of his or the U2 thing, or you know, you know, time like you know. Underworld was one of my favorite concerts uh, that I saw at the time. Like, there's so many things that, you know, right. it, you know, that LA Guns show was like one of the reunion was one of my favorite, you know, shows. Is It's just like, you know, there's there's so many favorite shows, best shows ever. Um, you know, it's, I think that's. And you were saying to me earlier, being privy to having. Bono in the same room laying down a vocal. Well, that was the best show. Just sitting here in the yeah, room with Bono, that's true. with Bono standing behind me singing and like you know, Edge playing tambourine behind me and singing to the same mic with Bono like recording like that. That's, that's you know. Yeah, but I think it's much better. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a there's, there's 
I think uh, I think there's there's no one favorite. There's, I think there's a lot of room for favorites. Yeah. You know? There was that time Edge was in here trying to work out a part, and he just kind of went on a ten minute, just just kept playing and playing and playing. His different risk kept coming out, and I think uh, Deck and you and I were just the only other people in the room. I was just like, oh my god. Him and he's just trying to find it. Yeah, he just kept kept going and going and going, and then he finally stops and just kind of pauses and looks around. Like there might be something in there. (laughs) God, there were like six songs. He just that could have been. Even like 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 Bono sitting on the couch over there and just like picks up a guitar I had there. And that one over there that uh, classical guitars are interesting looking etchings on. He's like, I said. But that story, that guitar has a lot of stories to tell. Just picks it up and starts playing a Doors song, a yeah. song it was too. Like that's cool. Like just yeah. Uh, and just even like when I'm sitting there like recording, so like I'm recording, you know, you know, Billy, he's sitting next to me playing, you know, guitar solo. I feel like I should be, be staring at that, you know, or yeah. you know, singing behind me or whatever. All this just is a uh, every every show is uh, is my favorite show, like, however big or small, you know. Yeah. Hey, I, that's you know. You're, you're a musical lover, and yeah. that's a nice thing to hear. Well, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys giving me yeah, uh, your time, and uh, thank you. All right. A big thank you to Mitch and Scott of Pole Music and Sound. You can see and hear all the great work Pole does for brands like Nike. Apple and ESPN on their website, pullpullpull.com, and you can catch up with Mitch's band, Orba Squara, at orbasquara.com. My apologies to Chris Novoselic for mispronouncing his name. I don't know why I've always thought his name was, uh, well, everyone always forgets the T of Christ, but uh, Novoselic, I always used to think it was Novosek for some godforsaken reason, and that was in my head when I was trying to uh, pick his name out of the hat, so... My apologies to, uh, to Chris. It's pretty much a normal feature on the show is my butchering of names, so uh, everyone should come to expect that from, from here on out, but I'll try to do better. We'll be back next Tuesday with an all-new show with my first Grammy winner, so tune in to find out who that might be. That is all for this Rockonomics Podcast, Episode 20. Good night, Cleveland. <laughs>